It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 780 for the 18th of February, 2022. This week, virtual private networks can protect your computer and your data, but they can also lead to a false sense of security. So do you really need one? In Short Circuits, if you heard last week's podcast, you know how to find out what Amazon knows about you. This week, let's consider what Google knows about you. There's no single form to fill out to ask for the information, but there are lots of places you can look. What do you think we'll see in 2022 other than more variants of COVID? Several technologies that aren't exactly new look like they're bubbling toward general acceptance. And 20 years ago, it seemed that just about everyone with a Palm organizer had downloaded Bejeweled. With many people still working from home, the importance of a virtual private network or VPN is being stressed by security experts. A VPN does offer increased security, but at a cost. Convenience and speed may both suffer. So maybe this is a good time to think about whether or not you need a VPN, and if so, whether you need it to be active all the time. I've been a proponent of VPNs for quite a while. My wife and I have two quite different use cases. She works from home using a company-provided laptop computer that's encrypted and connects to the corporate network via a VPN. The VPN is essential her computer will not connect to the business network without it. I also work from home, but no longer connect to a corporate system. A VPN application on my computer is disabled most of the time. My cellular service provider is Google Fi, and the phone has a built-in, always-on VPN. I could turn it off if I wanted to, but I don't. Even though the pandemic has kept me at home much of the past two years, I keep the VPN enabled on the phone because it's unobtrusive and it provides secure connections when I'm away from the house. Previously, I had used NordVPN on the phone, but it interfered with one of the banking applications I use. Ironically, the banking operation was incompatible with the NordVPN, because the virtual private network made it impossible for the bank's system to confirm that my connection was coming from the United States. Bank and other financial connections are exactly the reason many people use a VPN, though. Fortunately, the Google Fi VPN does not interfere with the bank's app, so now I've fully disabled NordVPN on the phone, but I retain it on the desktop computer, even though it is off most of the time. Before explaining why it's off most of the time, let's look at what VPNs can do. The VPN will hide your IP address and display a distant IP address instead. The IP address identifies your general location. With the VPN off, those who know how to examine my external IP address will know that I'm somewhere in or around Columbus. Now, Columbus covers a fairly big area. More than 1.6 million people live in the metro area. The VPN might make it appear that I'm in the Chicago area or somewhere around New York City, San Francisco, or Dallas. 
It could also make it appear that I'm in Spain, Ireland, France, or Australia, and several other countries. This can be helpful for someone who's attempting to view a website not available in the United States, but some sites refuse connections from computers that use a VPN. On a 1 to 10 scale, that would probably put this feature at about a 2 in terms of usefulness for most people. By providing end-to-end encryption, a VPN keeps your internet service provider from seeing which websites you visit or inserting ads based on your browsing. My ISP does not insert ads into the general data stream, so this is unimportant to me. If you use an ISP that inserts ads or collects information about your interests and then sells that information, it might rank a little higher for you. So on my 1 to 10 scale, some might rank it as a 2, while others could rank it as high as an 8 or a 9. Although modern web browsers do a better job of protecting users from being tracked across the Internet, a VPN is even more effective. By disguising your IP address, it limits but doesn't remove the ability of websites to associate your activities with a specific computer. On my 1 to 10 scale, this probably ranks about a 5 for most people. Encryption provided by a VPN protects data that could be viewed if you use public Wi-Fi access points in restaurants or coffee shops or airports. This doesn't apply to a Wi-Fi connection inside your house, though. So if you travel much and you use public access points, this has to rank as a 10 on my 1 to 10 scale. But if you use only your password-protected Wi-Fi system or other protected Wi-Fi systems at the homes of friends and relatives or in offices, it's a zero. While a VPN can provide useful security, there are some downsides. After all, just about everything in life has trade-offs. In dealing with computers, the trade-offs can sometimes come back to bite you in the most uncomfortable places. The problem with the banking application is one issue. Although the VPN doesn't make it impossible to connect to the bank when I'm on the desktop computer, it does result in more challenges. Those challenges require two-factor authentication. As annoyances go, that's minor because it delays logging in by just a few seconds. A VPN will also reduce the speed of your internet connection. That comes under the terms of there is no such thing as a free lunch provision of life. The speed reduction might be minor, cutting a 500 megabits per second connection to maybe 450 or 435 megabits per second. But it also might be major, reducing the connection to 250 megabits per second. Ping times also may increase. In one of my tests, ping increased from the 10 milliseconds or less that I'm used to seeing without a VPN to more than 230 milliseconds. That's slightly less than a quarter of a second just to get a response. Cutting download speed in half would be a significant downside for a lot of people. Fortunately, the more common speed reductions are in that 10 to 20 percent range. Noticeable, but not a showstopper. Ideally, a VPN would be added on the router for those who need security, but few consumer-grade routers have that capability. Now, the VPN application must be installed on every device you use. Also, a VPN won't protect your login credentials from social engineering ploys or eliminate malware threats. Presumably, your computer's operating system has a built-in firewall, or you've added one, and you use a password manager to reduce those threats. Here are some other points to consider before installing a VPN. 
having a VPN can lead to a false sense of complacency. While the VPN does offer some protections against being tracked or identified, there are lots of holes in that net. Browser fingerprinting, which is a technique that captures information from your browser as you wander around the Internet, can definitively identify a particular computer nearly 100% of the time with surprisingly small bits of information. Not all VPNs are created equal. Nearly all VPN operators say they log nothing. Many of them are not being entirely truthful, though. Free VPNs are the most suspect in that regard. If the VPN you're considering does not have a paid subscription option, beware. Some operators of totally free VPN services collect data about users, log it, and sell it. Keep in mind that VPNs increase the amount of data for each connection. This is unimportant for home users unless they have a metered connection, but the extra data usage could increase the cost of your mobile data plan. The increase is usually modest, but it can approach 20% depending on the protocol the VPN uses. And good VPNs are not free. Expect to pay 3 to $4 a month. In many cases, that fee is distributed across all or some specific number of your desktop, notebook, and tablet computers, as well as any mobile devices you own. It's not a large expense, but it is an expense. Don't expect to get something of value for nothing. If you want a VPN, PC Magazine has an excellent review, and I have a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. They show their top 10 picks for 2022 based on a review of 19 services. I have used private internet access and was generally pleased with the results. That's one of their top picks. But I switched to NordVPN about two years ago. It is also one of PC Magazine's six recommended options. One new entry that might be worth looking at is the Mozilla VPN. PC Magazine rates it as excellent, but the cost is $10 a month. That's a good bit higher than any competing service. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, if you've heard last week's podcast, you know how to find out what Amazon knows about you. This week, let's consider what Google knows about you. There's no single form to fill out to ask for the information, as with Amazon, but there are places you can look. Lots of places. It's not just Google searches that reveal your information to the company, but that's a major source. Using Google Maps will tell the company about areas you've looked at, Google's calendar knows about your schedule. If you have an Android phone, and more than 70% of the phones in the U.S. are Android, then Google may know where you've been and when. 
At its most basic, Google attempts to classify you for sale to advertisers. As with Amazon, Google doesn't sell information about specific individuals. Instead, it picks the ads it shows you on characteristics that are based on personal info you've added to your Google account, data from advertisers that partner with Google, and Google's estimation of your interests. That's a direct quote from Google's website. My list of characteristics and interests contains 194 entries. These start with demographic information, older than 65, male married, English speaker. Okay, those are all right. Then there are topics you might expect based on what you know about me. Cats, Android OS, classic rock, classical music, computer hardware, consumer electronics, dictionaries and encyclopedias, Honda, jazz, politics, TV dramas, VPN at Windows OS, and lots more. The Mac OS was omitted, but iOS was included. Google also listed several inexplicable interests, such as reality TV, cricket, BMW, extreme sports, hockey, motorcycles, and pickup trucks. All of those have exactly zero or even less appeal for me. If you'd like to see what characteristics and interests Google has for you, visit the Ad Personalization page. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. While you're on the page, you can enable Google to use your activity and information from Google services to personalize ads on websites and apps that partner with Google to show ads. Google explains that this stores data from websites and apps that partner with Google in your Google account. By default, it's off. It's also possible to turn ad personalization off entirely, but you won't see fewer ads. They'll just be more random. Google knows what you've been watching on YouTube, and if you want to review that activity, check the YouTube activity page. A link is on the TechBiter Worldwide website. YouTube history can be turned off using the Controls tab. On the Interactions tab, you can see a list of videos you've liked or disliked, your comments, chat messages, and community posts. Perhaps the most useful or most invasive Google feature is the ability to show where you've been and when, if you've enabled location services on an Android phone. I have found this to be useful because I can then use the timeline feature to remind me where I've been and when. For example, I know I was at a Giant Eagle supermarket around 1 p.m. on the 15th of January, at a United Dairy Farmers around 1.35, and back home by 1.46. So maybe if I'm ever a suspect in a murder investigation, I can prove, more or less, using Google where I was, and that I didn't commit the murder. However, if you do commit a crime, this feature could hang you. In any event, the information is available from the Google Maps timeline. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll also find a map that shows all of the places you've visited carrying your phone. Determining whether to disable location history on an Android phone involves deciding whether privacy concerns outweigh the benefits of being able to track your own movements. There's no right or wrong answer here. It's just what you figure is best for you. Clearly, Google knows your personal cell phone numbers, details of Google searches, including websites you've visited, and where you work and live. If you've used the Google Assistant, Google will know about your interactions. For example, on the day that I was preparing this report, I had told the Assistant to turn on the television light at 521. Nine minutes later, the assistant would have turned the light on automatically, but I was up a little early. 
You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to the activity page. There you can view all of your interactions with Google Ads, Android, the Assistant, Books, Calendar, Chrome, Developers, Discover, Gmail, Apps, Lens, News, Play, Books, Games, Movies, TV, and Store, TV, Translate, Help, Image Search, Maps, Podcasts, Search, Shopping, Video Search, Voice and Audio, and YouTube. And yes, obviously, Google has a lot of places where they can collect information from you. The results from Google Books omits the name of the book and the author. It reports only a URL and the time you started reading the book. Each URL I've followed leads to an error message, so that might not be particularly useful. Visiting the activity page could result in a lot of lost time. Still, it is interesting to examine what Google knows. Even more important, this is where you have some control over what Google collects and options to delete some existing data. Although nearly all browsers are based on Chrome, only Google's version collects data for Google. The Vivaldi browser that's currently my default is invisible to Google. The Google Dashboard provides another view of various Google services you use. You'll find a link to the Dashboard on the TechBiter Worldwide website. On that page, you can download a copy of your data to save locally or use with another account. An option on this page also allows users to delete individual services. One final stop in this journey could be to see which third-party apps have access to your data. You'll find that on the Apps page, and there's a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I didn't find anything surprising there. A Google Nest Mini has full access to my Google account. Bluemail, which I use on the phone, has access to Gmail, Google Calendar, and Google Contacts. A Mac PowerBook has access to Gmail, Google Calendar, Google Contacts, and Google Hangouts. My primary Windows computer has access to Gmail, Google Calendar, Google Contacts, and the Vivaldi browser has access to the Google Calendar. Backup and Sync from Google, Google Drive for Desktop, and YouTube TV all have the expected permissions. As we saw with Amazon, Google has a lot of information about you. The only way to eliminate Google's ability to access your information would be to stop using the Internet. It is possible to limit what Google collects when you're using Google services, but so many Internet-based operations depend on Google that Google will always have some access anytime you're online. What do you think we'll see in 2022 other than more variants of COVID? Several technologies that aren't exactly new do seem to be bubbling toward general acceptance. Take electric cars and trucks, for example. Most people still don't own one, but just about every vehicle manufacturer is putting more emphasis on electric vehicles. You've doubtless heard of Tesla. Maybe you've even seen some of the cars around your neighborhood. But what about Lucid and Rivian? Lucid's automobiles start at just under $78,000. The company is headquartered in Silicon Valley. Rivian makes trucks, and models of those start at just under $70,000. Mercedes-Benz and Volkswagen are concentrating on electric vehicles, but their prices will continue to be high. Ford and General Motors may be able to create electric vehicles that are more within people's price ranges. And what about smart homes? 
I've had a Google Nest speaker for a few years. I can tell it to play music, ask for the temperature or weather forecast, even tell the assistant to wake me up at a specific time. But now I've added a smart light bulb. Yeah, just one. One light bulb. Well, I had a valid reason. Before going to sleep, I like to watch television shows or motion pictures on a streaming service. The cat likes to join me and lean on my ankles. And as anybody who is owned by a cat knows, you don't disturb a sleeping cat. There is a lamp beside the television to provide a small amount of light in the room. And to avoid having to get up and turn it off, I just tell the Google Assistant to do it. The assistant also turns the light on about 5.30, that's about half an hour before the clock radio comes on, to mark the official start of my day. Perhaps a few more smart devices will make their way into the house. Manufacturers such as Apple, Amazon, Google, and Samsung are all working together on standards that they call Matter. This used to be called the Zigbee Alliance. The objective is to ensure that smart devices, regardless of who manufactures them, will work with other devices. That should increase acceptance, even from those who may have previously been frustrated by these devices. And we'll probably see more capable smart thermostats, doorbells, and other devices. Eliminating cable television is becoming more mainstream. When we did it at home, we got faster internet service, more choices, and a lower price. Websites and Facebook groups dedicated to dealing with streaming video are busy as new users deal with the differences and prospective cable cutters investigate their options. And then there's Metaverse, with or without Meta. We'll hear a lot of blather about how this company or that will bring you the Metaverse in all its radiant glory. But let's face it, the Metaverse doesn't exist yet. There are bits and pieces that may be part of some future metaverse, but it's no more complete than the Internet was in 1990. There were bits and pieces back then, some of which still exist, but most of which vanished as better options were invented. The metaverse will still be in the equivalent of the Model T era for a while, but we'll be sure to hear a lot of talk about it this year. The shortage of processors and other electronic bits will continue to cause problems for manufacturers who make electronic devices and also for auto manufacturers. It looks like the situation will improve a bit in the second half of the year, and some chip manufacturers have decided to start fabricating chips in the United States, including a huge Intel plant northeast of Columbus. The plant will employ about 3,300 people when it's fully operational. Intel employs more than 110,000 people worldwide, about 53,000 of them in the United States. Well, those are some of the trends and events that seem to be on the horizon for the rest of 2022. I have to wonder, though, which ones I'm misjudging and which I haven't even noticed. You won't find any current trends in 20 years ago when you visit the TechFighter Worldwide website, but you can read about a popular mobile game from 2002 called Bejeweled. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>